Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, our focus this morning will be on verses 12 and 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, but that we might hear those verses in context, I actually want to read the, the warnings uh, that come in verse 1 and then again in verse 11. And that will lead us into our reading of verses 12 through 13. If you're using uh, one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Hebrews uh, 4, 12, and 13 on page 1003. Uh, And so you can look there. But I'm going to begin with verse 1, then read verse 11, uh, and then read our text for this morning, verses 12 and 13. This is the very Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his Word here this morning. Father God, as we come before you humbly this morning, we confess that far too often it is our natural tendency to harden our hearts when we hear your voice. We are far too much like the Israelites, Father. Far too prone to to stand firm in our unbelief rather than to allow your word to call us into faith. And so we pray this morning that as, as we hear your word read and as we hear your word preached, that you would cause it to be effective in our lives, that you would cause it to open our eyes, that we might see the glory of your Son, that you would cause it to, to open our ears, that we might hear the, the good news of the gospel concerning him. And that you would open our hearts to receive it, that we might love him, and that we might yield to him, clinging to him alone for our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what warnings you still hear in your mother's voice. What are those warnings that your mom said to you so often when you were younger that you, you simply cannot forget them? I've, I've heard people tell of, of such warnings before, but as I reflected on my own life, I don't know what it says about me, but I couldn't really remember any of the warnings that my mom used to give me. Maybe that's because she didn't warn me, but I doubt it. Maybe it's because I just don't remember my childhood all that clearly. That's possible. It's sort of a running joke in my family. Or or maybe it's just that I tend to disregard warnings. I tend not to hear them. 
I think a lot of us are like that. There are, there are warnings that we just simply tend to, to disregard. Sometimes they are worthy of being ignored. We live in a culture where companies are, are fearful of being sued, and so we are inundated with a lot of silly warnings, a, a lot of warnings that simply don't need to be said. There are other warnings, however, that are deadly serious. There are other warnings that we need to hear. And I would suggest to you that there are two such implied warnings in this text that actually come in the form of commands, of, of things that we are to do. But in the command, there is an implied warning. We, we see the first one in verse 1. Verse 1 of, of chapter 4, we are told to fear. So long as today is the day of salvation, the author says, so, so long as the promise of entering His rest still stands, so long as it is still open to us, we should fear lest we fail to reach it. In that command there is a, a warning, a warning about the tragedy of failing to enter God's rest. Whatever you do, do not fail to enter. The same sort of warning is, is contained in, in verse 11. Again, it's, it's in the form of a command. We are, we are told that we are to strive to enter. We are, we are to strive to enter God's rest. It is to be the, the focus of our uh, intentional, zealous, earnest effort. It is to be that thing that we let all other priorities fall to the side for the sake of it, for the sake of pursuing this one thing, for the sake of pursuing God's rest. And again, the warning is there. The warning against failing to attain, failing to enter on the last day. We spent a considerable amount of time considering these warnings in the last weeks. And so I wonder... How have you responded? How have you responded to these warnings in the past few weeks? How have they begun to, to shape your heart and to shape your life? Our confession says that receiving the Word of God as the Word of God means acting differently because of what it says. In particular, it says that, that the one who receives the Word of God by faith, the one who, who receives the Word as the Word, that one will yield obedience to the commands. It will embrace the promises and it will tremble. The confession says at the threatenings, but, but at the warnings at the warnings that are contained in God's Word. And so as we, we come here this morning to, to continue our study of this passage, I, I have to begin simply by asking you, are you doing that? Have you trembled at the warnings? Or have we become so presumptuous of God's grace that we disregard the warnings of Scripture the way we disregard the warnings on the product we bought at the store. You see, the author of Hebrews, he wants us to tremble at his warning. And to that end, he, he, he wraps up his warnings with a reminder 
of the nature of the source. Notice that. That that verse 12 begins with a a four. Four. I've just given you two warnings. They've bookend verses 1 through 11. You are to fear missing out on that rest. You are to strive to enter that rest. And you are to do all this. Why? For or, or because the Word of God is living and active. We are to to fear and we are to strive because the Word of God is living, it is active, it is sharp, it is piercing, and it is discerning. And so if we are going to respond to the warnings that we have heard properly, we need to understand and we need to see clearly the nature of God's Word. But before we dive into the the picture that he gives us, we need to understand what it is that he's actually talking about. What is it that he is referring to as the Word of God? So that's where we begin this morning. What is the object that is being referred to? What is the Word that he has in mind? I think it's safe to say that in our context, most of us sitting here this morning, when we hear the language of the Word of God, we immediately assume that He's talking about the Bible. We immediately assume that He is, he is talking about the Scriptures. And so the question that we have to ask is, that, is that actually what the author has in mind? Is he talking about the Bibles that we hold in our hands this morning? And I'm going to suggest to you that the answer to that question is actually yes. <laughs> that yes, he is, he is speaking about the Bibles that we hold in our hands. He, he doesn't actually have a New Testament himself yet. He's, he's in the process of writing part of it. And we don't know exactly when the book of Hebrews was written, but we know that other letters have been written to this point, or the Gospels have been written. Other letters are still to be written. The, gospel, the, the New Testament is still being gathered together. But nevertheless, what he writes here about the Word of God applies to the Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. We, we see that as we follow his his logic. You'll, you'll remember that the whole letter began with a reference to the Word of God. Look back with me at chapter 1. In the very first verse of this letter. In the very first verse of this letter, we see that the Word of God is a word, obviously, spoken by God Himself. And so He tells us, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so there you, there you have it. God is a speaking God. And the Word of God is the Word that He speaks to His people. And so therefore, when He speaks, His Word comes to us with His authority. It comes with the the very authority of God because it is the very Word of God. And so the first thing we need to see is that the Word of God is a Word spoken by God. But notice, it is a Word spoken by God through human instruments. We, We see this again in these opening verses. Long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke. There it is. God spoke to our fathers. But how did He speak to our fathers? He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, He has spoken by the Son. And so, He has spoken by the prophets. He has spoken by the Son. And, and we are told in chapter 2 that He has spoken by the Son through those whom heard. The, the Gospel actually came to uh, the church through those who were with Jesus, who, who heard Jesus proclaim this Gospel. Those whom He declared to be His apostles. 
Remember, apostle is one who, who is sent with a message, one who is sent to speak on another's behalf. Just like the Old Testament prophets spoke the very words of God to the Old Testament people of God, so the apostles spoke the very words of God to the New Testament people of God. And we are told, even at the end of this letter, that, that the, the Hebrews are, are instructed to remember their leaders because they are the one who spoke the Word of God to them. And so the Word of God comes through human instruments. And so God speaks. He is a, a speaking God, and He is a God who speaks through human instruments. But here's the third step. The words of those human instruments are recorded for us in writing, in the Scriptures. That's what the word Scripture means. It is the the writings. It's the the written record of the Word of God that, that came to the people of God through the human instruments that God chose to use. And so the Word of God comes to His people through prophets and through apostles, and it is written down by those prophets and those apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're told elsewhere. Remember what we're, we're told, no, no scripture comes from the will of man, but, but it's written as they are carried along by the Spirit. Paul tells us that it is breathed out by God. And so we, we have the writings themselves being inspired by God being expired by God. They are the, the, the written record is the very Word of God. And, and that the author himself believes this, we see throughout the whole uh, of the first four chapters. As you begin scanning through, beginning at verse 1, what do you see over and over and over again? You, you see the author referring to written Scripture. All right, again and again, he, he refers to that which has been written. And how does he quote from that which has been written? Well, he says, God says, verse 5, chapter 1, of which of the angels did God ever say? And then he quotes from Scripture. Verse 6, again, when he brings the firstborn to the world, he says, that is, God says, let the angels worship him. And it goes on and on again and again. He quotes from the written record. And he says, God says. God says this. God says that. We, we see this maybe most clearly in, in our own chapter, in, in chapter 4. Because earlier in chapter 3, the author had quoted from Psalm 95. He had quoted from, from the Psalms. And he had quoted at some length. And he's actually been, been meditating upon that Psalm and its significance for his own audience as, as he is writing. But notice what he says in chapter 4. He, he says that, that David spoke. David wrote Psalm 95. So he writes Psalm 95 some a thousand years before the author of Hebrews writes. And yet, even though David wrote Psalm 95, what does he say? God spoke through David. God said, God appointed another day. We see in verse 7 of chapter 4. So God spoke through David. And so the written record, Psalm 95, the the written record that he had is the very Word of God. And we know that he now regards the words of the apostles 
as even superior to the words of the Old Testament prophets, as, as a more complete revelation. Previously, God spoke through the prophets, but now He has spoken through the Son. And so we have the, the apostles of the Son bringing to us the very Word of God, and their written words are the very Word of God today. There are some who still believe that, that God still speaks through prophets today. There are others, like myself, who, who believe that God has, has ceased to speak through prophets because the foundation upon which the church is going to be built has been laid once and for all. I'm not going to settle that question this morning. It doesn't even really matter whether I settle that question this morning. If you want to have that discussion, we can have it another time about whether God still speaks through prophets. But, but whether you believe He is still speaking through prophets this morning or whether you believe that He has ceased to speak through prophets, this much is clear that the record we have of what the prophets have said is the very Word of God. It's why we make it central to everything we do. This is the living, active Word of God. We have it. We, we have it translated into our own languages so, so that we can read it, so that we can meditate on it. We, we have the Word of God. And so the question is, how are we to regard this Word? What, what, is, the, what is the nature of this Word that we possess? It's what the author wants us to see. It's what he tells us here beginning in verse 12. And he gives us a very dense description of it. He tells us that this Word, this Word that we have from God, this, this written record of the Word, is living, active, sharp, piercing, and discerning. And we really need to understand each of those terms if we are going to respond to this Word as the very Word of God. So let's begin with living. What does it mean to say that this Word is living? Well, obviously it means to say that it is, it is alive. But, but what does it mean for a Word to be alive? People sometimes today speak about the Constitution being a living document and what they mean by that is that it is open to change, that it is open to adapt, that it is, it is open to be reinterpreted according to the needs of the present age. Let me say decisively, that is not what the author of Hebrews means when he speaks of the Bible as a living word. He does not mean that it is open to change. In fact, he means something that is almost exactly the opposite. He means that what God said previously, a long time ago is still, in its, uh, in its inherent um, uh, continuity, applicable to us today. When God spoke to former generations, He did so in His omnipotent power in such a way that what He said to them, He says also to us. If you've heard people describe the Bible as God's letter to you, and, and you know, seminary students sometimes like to object to that and say, well, no, no, it wasn't really written to you, it was, it was written to somebody else. And they're kind of right, but they're also a bit sophomoric. Because, yes, God spoke to another generation, but the author of Hebrews tells us that the Word is living. It is, it is to us today. That's exactly the way that the author of Hebrews treats Psalm 95. He says, yes, it was written to them a long time ago, but it is to you. God says, present tense, this to you today. 
That's what Paul says. He goes, yes, God recorded these things a long time ago, but he recorded them for you, the church, today. The Word is living. It is to each new generation. It is to every believer. We don't believe that an ancient document written thousands of years ago is is still applicable today simply because the, the, the writers then were so wise. We believe it because the omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful God beyond time spoke in such a way that His words are always present. It is a living word. And not only is it a living word, but it is an active word. What does it mean to say that His word is active? It means that it accomplishes its purpose. We sometimes speak of our own words as if they are insufficient by themselves. Even the Bible speaks this way about human words. John tells us that we are not to love merely in word, but we are to love in deed. James challenges us. He, he, says, he says, what good is it if you say to your brother, be warm and filled, if you don't do anything to meet his needs? Our words by themselves are insufficient because they are merely human words. We must add action to our words. God's Word is not like that. God's Word is an active and powerful Word. God's Word is a Word that that accomplishes its purpose by its power. We see this on full display in, in the creation account, do we not? God says, let there be light, and there is light. He creates all that is. He he creates the entire cosmos by the mere word of His power. He speaks it into existence. Because as the prophet Isaiah tells us, God's words do not return void. His words accomplish their purpose. His word is an active word. And so what is it that that God's Word is active accomplishing? It's what he highlights in the next three descriptors here. First, he tells us that God's Word is a sharp, two-edged sword. Actually, sharper than any two-edged sword. And and pastors and commentators sometimes get lost trying to figure out what the two edges of the sword represent. If they're meant to represent anything, I have no idea. But I can tell you what the image of a sword represents. A sword was an instrument of judgment. A sword was the right to take vengeance. We sometimes hear it said that that vengeance is is unchristian, that vengeance shouldn't be taken. And that's exactly right when we're talking about individuals throughout all of Scripture, even in the Old Testament. Vengeance was prohibited to an individual as an individual. But God always maintained the right. God maintained the right to judge. God maintained the right to execute punishment. And in His divine wisdom, He has entrusted that right to certain institutions. He, he for example, has, has given the sword to the government, Paul tells us in Romans 13. And so the government has the right by force to maintain peace and to establish justice, to punish wrongdoers. That is God's prerogative that He has entrusted to the state. 
And it is envisioned as a sword. And so the sword, the same sword that, that we see in the mouth of, of Christ when he, when he speaks to his churches in, in Asia Minor, in the book of Revelation, the, the same sword is a representation of God's right to judge. One of the things that the word does is that it judges. It brings judgment against God's people. And we're, we're told that it is a piercing judgment. Again, notice how he puts it. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Again, it's a, it's a phrase that is somewhat difficult to understand. What exactly is he saying? Is he, is he saying that, that the, the sword pierces to dividing soul from spirit and joints from marrow? Or is it soul and spirit over here being divided from joints and marrow over, over here? It's, it's difficult to know for, for certain exactly what the image that he has in mind because he's, he's talking in such a, a shorthand. But this much is clear. That this judgment that comes by the sword, it pierces below the surface and it takes into account, it, it pierces both body and soul. Whether you think spirit is being divided from soul and joint from marrow, or whether you think the, the spirit and soul is being divided from the joint and marrow, clearly what you see going on here is that the judgment of God affects both your body and your soul. It affects you as a whole person. It pierces to the very depths of humanity. It reminds me of Jesus' words when he, when he says to his disciples, Do not fear the one who can merely kill your body. But he goes on to say, but fear the one who has authority over both your body and your soul. Here the author of Hebrews is telling us that the Word of God has authority over your body and your soul. Your body and your soul are subject to the judgment of God's Word. Your entire being, who you are and who you will be for all eternity, as a body and soul together in one person, is subject to the judgment of the Word of God. And he tells us that when that judgment comes, it will be according to truth, because the Word is a discerning Word. Notice, it, it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So we have a word, a word that, that pierces, a word that, that, that brings judgment upon us as, as whole beings, as, as bodies and souls together, and it does so according to the truth. Jesus Himself said, that which is said in secret will one day be shouted from the rooftops. That which is done in the dark will one day be brought out into the lights. Because our God is a God who speaks a discerning word. He sees our secrets. He, he sees our, our thoughts. He, he sees our Intentions. For many of us, the, the idea of being exposed in that way is, is frightening. It is a, is a frightening thing to, to think that, that God sees all and that He will hold us accountable for 
all. And that's really the result of this discerning judgment that comes. Notice how he puts it in verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's how we stand before God. That's how we we stand before His, His Word. We are not hidden from His Side. I've, I've heard a story of, of people who have gone off the grid, so to speak. They, they cut themselves off from, from every sort of uh, connected technology. They don't use credit cards. They only use cash. They, they get their power from a, a generator. They, they don't plug into the grid in any way. And because they are off the grid, they remain hidden, even from something like the IRS the most powerful collection agency in the United States. And they, they sometimes are able to go years, if not their whole life, without paying taxes because they're hidden from the most powerful collection agency in our country. It's hard for us to believe that someone could be hidden from the IRS. But it happens. But it never happens that someone is hidden from the eyes of their Creator. You can go off the grid all you want. You are seen. In fact, more than than seen, what does he say? He says you are naked and exposed. To To be naked is to be without a covering. It means that you're not going to have anything to say in your defense. You're not going to be able to offer any justifications. To to use the language of Paul from Romans chapter 3, your mouth is going to be stopped. You are going to be silenced. You are going to be left without excuse. You're not going to have the opportunity to to spin the story in your favor. You will be utterly uncovered, utterly laid bare. The, the, The author uses that language of actually being exposed. The word actually means to have sort of the back of your head grabbed and forced backwards. You can imagine someone examining a, a horse at, at, the, at the market. Or the word actually comes out of the wrestling world where, where your throat is exposed and you're presumed to give up at that point. You're, you're, you're fully open to examination. Everything is going to be seen. All of the, not only your deeds, but the thoughts and intentions of your heart will be laid bare before the one to whom you must give an account. And that's really vital to this whole text. The, the idea that, that we, are, we are subject to give an account to our Maker. We were created by Him and we were created for Him. And the day is coming when we will give to Him an account of our lives. We are like a servant entrusted with a stewardship who must one day give account of what we have done with that which He has entrusted to us. And because we will be judged according to the Word, which is sharp and piercing, the judgment that comes on that day will be a judgment that will affect our whole body and souls for all eternity. That's the point that the author is making. He's saying, listen, I'm calling on you to fear because there's a coming a day when you'll be called to account. 
And the judgment that is rendered on that day is a judgment more weighty than any judgment you will ever face in this life. I'm calling you to strive to enter that rest because there's coming a day when you're going to have to give an account. And it is the accounting of your life. And your life depends on a few of the warnings that we hear are life and death warnings. Most of the warnings we hear have to do with avoiding loss or or avoiding injury. A few warnings have to do with, with protecting our actual physical lives. But this warning has to do not only with protecting our body and our bodily life, but with our souls and our eternity. This is the warning of Scripture. Do we tremble before it? Do we receive this warning as the very warning of God? In 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives thanks that the Thessalonians received his words not as the mere words of a man, but as they really are, as the very word of God. The Thessalonians knew that when Paul spoke to them, he was speaking the living and the active and the sharp and the piercing and the discerning word of God. And they received it as such. But what does it mean for us today to receive God's word as the very word? What does it mean for us in particular to to tremble at the warning of God's word? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the kind of fear that wonders whether God is good. Or wonders whether God is is able. John tells us that that perfect love drives out fear. And the fear he is talking about is the the fear that, that, that we will one day stand before God and that He will change His mind. That, that He will decide not to save. Or that somehow His purposes will be thwarted by a power greater than Him. We ought to have no such fear. God's promises are sure and amen. They have been demonstrated beyond reasonable doubt in the gift of the Son, Jesus Christ, who who came and took upon human flesh that He might stand in our place, that He might die in our place, and that He might rise again victorious over death for us, that He might lead many sons to glory. The fear that we have is not a fear that God will change His mind, that He will suddenly become capricious, or that He will somehow prove ineffective. That sort of love has been conquered, or that sort of fear has been conquered by Christ. We have no fear uh, that God's power will prove inadequate, or that His character will prove blameworthy, nor do we, do we strive to, to earn that which has already been offered to us as a gift. But rather, we are being called to fear, standing before Him on that day by ourselves. We are being called to to strive, not to earn what has been earned, but to cling to the One who earned it. We are being called to, to, to fear, standing apart from Christ, and to fear and to strive after clinging to Him 
as our only hope of salvation. We are being called to walk in the footsteps of faith. That is what it means to tremble at the warnings of Scripture. Scripture says that if you stand before God upon the merit of your own works, on that day you will receive from Him curse. For cursed is everyone who relies upon works of the law. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And none can be justified by their own efforts. But Scripture also promises that the one who stands on that day in Christ Believing in Him, resting upon Him, that one will never be put to shame. That one will be surely saved. Whatever temptation offers you, it pales in comparison to the glory of that day when you will be invited into His rest. And whatever whatever pain threatens you in this life, whether by flood or by, by fire... The the agonies of that, though they be real, Paul says they are slight and momentary when compared with the weight of glory that is being prepared for his children. And so therefore, if you fear, and if you strive, and if you rest in Christ, then you can renounce any temptation, and you can endure any trial, because you know you have a Savior who is assuredly leading you to glory. It's the promise of the Word, the living and active Word, that not only warns us that we might tremble, but that promises us that we might rest. And because God's warnings always come with a promise, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we come before you now humbly asking that you would indeed open our ears to hear your voice and open our hearts to receive it, that we might tremble at the warning, but that we might rest assured in the promise, receiving Jesus Christ as our one and only Savior, as the only source of our true delight. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.